Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him and asked him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others said Elijah and others, that the one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we adore you because you are a God. You are the Ancient of Days of whom Daniel wrote, who has all power and authority and wisdom and strength. As maker and creator, you wield your power according to your purposes. You guide and direct the planets and their courses above. You sustain the universe and you hold all things together. Father, and we confess we attempt to do the same and we just make a mess. We don't let you be sovereign and we fight against you and do what we think is wise and we judge things by what our eyes can see and our ears can hear and our mind can understand and we are fraught with problems and disasters and uh, a tangled web that we weave. Jesus, we confess we need you. We need your perfect wisdom. We need your perfect power. Not only the knowledge that you have, but the wisdom on how to use that knowledge. Not just unbridled power, but the perfect finesse to wield that power in such a way. Father, we need your perspective and your vantage point that you were working. You are our only hope in life and death. And as we sang earlier, we are prone to wander, Lord. We feel it prone to leave the God we love. When things don't go according to our plan and our desires and what we think should be happening, we give up when in reality you are building and digging a foundation so that when the rains come down and the floods come up, those who build their lives on the rock will stand firm. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your perfect wisdom, but we thank you for your perfect grace. When we make a hash of things, Father, you forgive us and you love us and you um, don't cast us aside and find someone else, but you 
work powerfully in us and through us to make much of yourselves and to glorify you in heaven. And Father, it is only in then do we find peace and satisfaction in Christ. Father, we come to you and we lift up those in our congregation who need you. Father, we pray for the Currys. You would strengthen Dave's body, make his treatment be effective, and we um, plead for you for Dave, that he may be able to proclaim your goodness and your mercy for many years from now. And we just ask that you would work in his life to move in his treatment and supernaturally touch his body. But Father, we trust you and we ask these with open hands, praying that every day of Dave's life that he has breath that he would use for your glory. Father, we thank you for your working and your moving and your guiding, and we pray for the people of Ocean Park that we would have a passion to share the gospel, that we would take what we are, are given and that the lessons and the teaching and the equipping and we would devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And I pray that the many distractions that we have in this world with instant notifications and instant gratifications, Lord, that so easily distract us from the most important things that don't have red lights and flashing and the tyranny of the urgent is so uh, takes hold of us. Father, may we be diligent to devote ourselves to eternal kingdom matters, trusting you with our earthly lives. For only that will stand and remain. Father, I pray in the proclamation of your word that you would be glorified and we would be satisfied in you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you be seated. Last week, we um, studied John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And um, over the course of uh, next week, uh, Chris will be coming and, and, and teaching us from 2 Corinthians. And then we'll be starting the book of Habakkuk. And I wanted to try to find a complement to John 3.16. And to be able to say, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? Because there are so many people that said, sure, I believe in Jesus, but their lives are radically different and, and, and uh, not the same as everyone else. Because, as uh, difficult as we may think to understand, there are many counterfeit followers of Jesus who are following Jesus for the wrong reasons. And when you look at the book of John, in John chapter 3, you have uh, the promise that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. But then as you read through the narrative, you see a lot of people that claim to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus, but they're believing for all the wrong reasons. Notice that when we get into John chapter 6, verse 2, John chapter 6 is really a pivotal time in the book of John where before Jesus is really popular and after Jesus is not. 
there is a very much a focus towards Calvary. But we see in the beginning of John chapter 6, it says a large crowd was following Jesus. Why? Because they wanted eternal life, because they trusted that he was the Son of God. No, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, and they were saying, this guy is spectacular. Nobody does this kind of stuff. This, you, you have to come out. And then there were those who were saying, well, let's bring our, our sick people to be healed and they can be touched and then we can keep our, our loved ones around. And then some people were following Jesus simply because they were hungry. And Jesus, a, a few verses later in John chapter 6, says this, and Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, and when he says that, that's, you know, pay attention when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. It's really like, hey, listen to me. I got something important to say. Not, uh, you are seeking me, you are following me, you are quote-unquote believing in me, not because you saw signs, but because you are filled, uh, because you ate your fill of the loaves. None of these people were genuine followers of Jesus. They didn't really believe in Jesus, even though in earlier in John it says they believed in him. But Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew their hearts and he knew their motivations for that. And then the same thing it is with us, Ocean Park. There are many people that say they believe in Jesus, but the question is why do they believe in Jesus? Because sometimes when Jesus' teachings get difficult at the end of John chapter 6, Jesus says this thing that just baffles them. Unless you uh, drink my, uh, eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life. And that really weirded out the, the people. And this is what they said. Many of the disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And then a few verses tragically later, John 6, 66, after this, many of his, what? Disciples. People who said they believed in Jesus, Jesus' followers, turned back and no longer walked with him. And that should cause us to stop and pause and to be able to think, why do people believe in Jesus? Why am I following Jesus? There are many people that believe in Jesus because they think that Jesus is a means to peace and to comfort, that he is some, kind, uh, some type of divine 401k plan that they build wealth with. He is a supernatural treatment to restore their health, that he is a means to a hidden knowledge that unlocks wisdom. And all of these people are following Jesus for the wrong reasons. And they will follow for a time, but when things get difficult and the way gets hard, they will fall away because their hearts are not following Jesus for the right reason. When we realize that the cost of following Jesus is hard, many people were not willing to pay that price. I want you to know this morning that the cost of following Jesus is everything. Everything. To follow him, you must relinquish control of your life. And yet those who see Jesus for who he really is know that the cost of everything is nothing. I want you to know this morning, uh, my big idea is this. Only those who lose their earthly life find eternal life in Christ. And how does that happen? That happens by laying aside the desires of your earthly life, 
laying aside the desires of your earthly life and pursuing the glory of Christ's eternal life. You lay aside the earthly life and you pursue the glories of eternal life. Only those who truly believe in Christ are willing to pay such a price to follow Jesus. If you're not already, th already there, turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. It's on 867 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Pew Bible, but you're not sure where it is, you can go in the table of contents right in the beginning. Uh, Luke is the third book, Matthew, Mark, Luke of the New Testament. And you can see right there in the table of context, the page number. And then you go to Luke chapter 3. But I want to set the context of this because one of the biggest challenges of just jumping into a, a verse is that you have to be, okay, what's going on before, what's going after? I don't, I'm not familiar with this book. So you need to be able to know the context of where you are. So Jesus has just revealed, asked the questions, the, quest, the disciples, the question of his identity. Who do people say that I am? And in verse 18, the, they say, the crowds, the disciples answered, says, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, who do these great miracles, and others say a prophet of old has risen. And he says, okay, that's what people say about me. And he looked at his disciples, the 12, as we know, the 12 disciples. He looked at them and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter seemingly without any hesitation whatsoever, said, you are the Christ of God. That's the Greek way of saying you are the Messiah of God. The crowds say that you have power and influence and authority and you're doing magnificent things like the prophets of old and Elijah and the prophet of John the Baptist who's been beheaded. They say that you're significant and you're a big deal. But we say that you're much more than that. You are the one we've been waiting for. We are the one that the prophets of old and the scholars and the teachers have been scouring through the pages to get a glimpse of what God is doing. You are the one that the Father who so loved the world sent His only Son. That is you. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. We've been waiting for you. And then Jesus doesn't say, finally, it took you so long to get it. What does he say to the most curious response in verse 21? Bad marketing. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that. So he says, yes, but don't tell anyone. Because Jesus knew there was more to come. Though he had come and taught, his reason wasn't to teach. His reason came to redeem his people from their sin, to ransom them out of their sin. And so Jesus is coming. He says, don't tell anybody. I have more that I have to do. The Messiah needs to lay down his life for his people. In doing that, Jesus is also teaching them what type of disciples that he is seeking. He is not seeking cool people to give him a shout out. He's not seeking intelligent people to win arguments for him. He is seeking disciples who will lay down their life for him and follow him. Because we know that only those who lose their earthly life will find eternal life in Christ. And there's a sneak preview of what's to come. Um, Chris or Scott or Chris or Steve, will you click on the first um, 
point that says lay aside the desires of the earthly life? Jesus, in verse 23, tells them the first thing he calls them to do is to lay aside the desires of your earthly life, in verse 23. And Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, he's setting the expectations of what a disciple of Jesus will look like. And because following Jesus is the most unnatural thing that a human heart can do. And you might say, well, that's an odd thing for a pastor to say. Following Jesus should be easy. Because following Jesus requires some complete surrender of our desires and our comfort to Jesus. Notice the first thing he calls them. Surrender your desires. Let him or her deny himself. The terms of salvation are entirely written by the one who saves. It's not, salvation is not a 50-50 deal. It's not even a 60-40. It's a 100 and zero proposition. Jesus, for the record, is the 100 and you are the zero. That's, we're really, you're all a bunch of zeros. That's, talk about, you know, feel good, have a nice day. When a person follows Jesus, they look at Jesus and says, I cannot save myself. You must save me. It's like if we were on the beach and someone was drowning in the water, there's nothing that person can do at that point. They are going under. And Jesus must come and rescue us. It is only the power of the lifeguard that brings that person out. In fact, when that person fights, often when fight against the lifeguard, the lifeguard will pull back and let them go down until they are completely surrendered to him or her, and then they will pull that person out of the water. Salvation is 100 and zero, and it's all Jesus. Therefore, a genuine disciple confesses that they must deny their hearts to follow Jesus. They must say, I love Jesus more than my passions, more than my desires, more than my lusts, because they run counter to the way of salvation. And so you say, what are these things? What is myself, himself, herself that I must deny? Good question. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. Well, actually, this wasn't our thinking, but for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of anything you did. It's 100% Jesus, and what is the result? That you can't boast. You just say, thank you, Jesus. And so what we do in response to that, to follow Jesus, we deny the works of the flesh. And Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, enviness, drunkenness, and the like. These are the things that the heart of man bubbles up in all different expressions. Not all of us have these expressions, but all of us have the same sinful heart. And Jesus says you must deny these things because these things are going to pull you off of that path of salvation like we know so well in, from, in Pilgrim's Progress. There are many things that pull us away from that road that leads to the celestial city, 
and we deny those things because those things are leading us away from Jesus. So we do that, we deny the works of the flesh, but not only the works of the flesh, but also the sinful desires that the enemy that is without, Satan and the enemy within our flesh will pervert to lead us away from Jesus. Things like approval. All of us, most of us, some people don't, but run ourselves ragged trying to earn the approval of different people. Maybe your parents, maybe your children, maybe, maybe it's your, your, your spouse, maybe your boss, maybe the people on the social media that you don't even really like, but you're trying to seek their approval. Jesus says, deny this desire to seek the approval of people and seek me. Honor. We go as people to great lengths to stroke our ego and to be recognized. We seek comfort. We want, especially as Western people, we desire a pain-free existence that is stress-free and that is easy. We want to sit in the lazy boy of life and never have to do a thing. And Jesus says, that will destroy you. Deny that and follow me. We have an attraction. We crave relationships of all different sorts. Business, uh, romantic, uh, friendship that will make us feel valuable and feel wanted and we'll do whatever we can to satisfy that relationship and to achieve that relationship. And then often it's this pleasure physical and sexual satisfaction, and we will go to whatever length and whatever means to do that. Often in the flesh, that means denying Christ. I want that, and I want it now. To follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves. And that's not me. That's Jesus. It's in the text. Calvin says this, this, this self-denial is very extensive. And it implies that we ought to give up on our natural inclinations. And that means those sinful desires that we have that come from us and part with all the affections of the flesh and thus give our consent to be reduced to nothing provided that God lives in us and reigns in us. Ocean Park, following Jesus is not a means of getting what your heart desires but it is the letting go of those desires so you can have what you need, and that's Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus unless you deny yourself. Not only are we called to surrender our desires, but we're also called to surrender our control. He says, let him deny himself, ladies, let deny herself, and take up his cross, daily. When, for us, we think of that, but first century Christians, when they're reading this and as they're hearing this, they're thinking of my, first century, what we would think of lethal injection of an electric chair, take up your electric chair, take up your lethal injection and follow me. First century people, when, when they were forced to take up their cross, they were being forced into submission by the Roman Empire. They had rebelled and not towed the line with the state, and the state was, um, was bearing down the full weight of punishment of their rebellion. 
and complete submission to the authority of the, sla- of the state led to the death of one's independence. Rome said, you're going to do it like we say, or we're going to kill you. And you can see in history, the slave rebellion in the Roman Empire, they, uh, 6,000 rebels were crucified on the road to Rome as a picture of don't mess with the state. This, brothers and sisters, is the very thing that Jesus calls. You cannot follow Jesus and retain control of your life. Jesus demands that you renounce your rebellious declaration of independence and crucify the control of yourself. Only then can you follow Jesus. Read this week Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, The Cost of Discipleship. For those of you who don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, incredible theologian, in the middle of World War II. He um, saw the rise of Nazism, said, uh, get out of Dodge, went into New York um, to work with the Germans there, uh, work with the German people as a pastor, but really felt the Lord. He says, I cannot betray my country. And he went back on the last boat from New York into Berlin. There was an unsuccessful coup. He was imprisoned. And two weeks before the end of the world, while the Allied forces were in Germany, he was hung for treason against Hitler. It was just very, knowing his history and his story, when you read this, the cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it is the means, it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Take up your cross daily. See, the cross is not the end of the Christian life, but it's the very beginning. The cross is the doorway to life. Salvation is only experienced when a person dies to self and lives to Christ. Ocean Park, if you belong to Jesus, you no longer have authority over your life. That's going to make some people in here uncomfortable. You belong to Jesus. You're not free to live as you want and to, because, or as if you belong to yourself, you live for Christ. You're not free to think and speak and act the way you desire. You are called to live Christ-like. You're not at liberty to invest your time and to pursue the things that you desire. You are called to pursue Christ and live for Christ. Jesus will not allow us to remain sovereign over our life if we want to follow him. Luke 14, 27, don't think I have it on the board. Take my word for it. It's this. Jesus says, Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 27, underline it, write it, remember it. 
J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said, a crucified Savior will never be content with a self-pleasing, self-indulging, worldly-minded people. When there is no self-denial, there is no real grace. When there is no cross, there is no crown. Jesus demands that all who follow him lay aside the desires of their earthly life. And it's very important that, that, that to note a little word in here. Dying to self is not a one-time act. What does it say? Take up your cross daily. There'll be a, a, a first time when you take up your cross and follow Jesus. But taking up your cross is a daily thing. Ocean Park, each day as you rise out of bed that the Lord has given you life, you must say to your heart, heart, you're no longer in charge. Jesus is. I love Jesus more than people's approval, more than worldly honor, more than earthly comfort, more than the relationships I desire, more than physical pleasure that I'm chasing after. Therefore, every day, you must be ready to endure opposition and share suffering and that at a point even death, metaphorically and physically, because you are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that only those who lose their earthly life will find eternal life in Christ. And therefore, you lay aside the desires of your earthly life. But then, it's not just simply saying no. No, no, no. But it's saying yes. And Jesus, in 24 through 27, says, pursue the glories of Christ's eternal life. Following Jesus is a deliberate choice to trade lesser, fleeting pleasures for infinite, eternal joy. Following Jesus is, as he tells us, is like discovering a treasure hidden in a field and joyfully and gladly and not quickly enough selling everything that you have that you may attain that treasure in the field. Following Jesus is trading tarnished trinkets for priceless treasures. Following Jesus is exchanging temporary amusement for permanent joy. Unlasting, unfiltered, unfettered, unfatable joy. Following Jesus is foregoing the instant gratification of this world for the eternal satisfaction of knowing God. The call to follow Jesus is the call to look past that thin veil, that veneer of, that we experience of, of suffering and pain and rejection because of the cross and seeing the eternal, magnificent glory of God. The glory of God whom the angels can't get enough and with their wings they fly around the, the throne of God and cry, Holy Holy, holy, there is nothing in all of creation that compares with the glory of God. And therefore, I can say, I am going to forego the cheap, transient, fading, uh, uh, 
saccharine sweets of this world because I have a lasting glory and joy of God. And it is a priceless treasure to know Him. And what Jesus tells us in these texts is that He calls His people to seek Christ's greater life, His greater kingdom, and His greater glory. Notice we are called to seek Christ's greater life in verse 24. For whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The human heart, and I think Denise even mentioned this in in Sunday school this morning, the human heart has a natural um, inclination to avoid pain and conflict and suffering at all costs. So much so that we will fight people for it or we will flee from anything that threatens our health and our peace and our comfort. Therefore, naturally, the heart avoids the cross because the cross is painful, it's difficult, it's shrouded with rejection. If you take up your cross, the world will reject you because they rejected Jesus. So what happens? Our heart is not naturally drawn to it, and we have to say there's something greater beyond this 60, 70, 80 years of difficulty. There is an eternity of glory that's beyond that, and a life that is so much better than just naturally trying to preserve our life now and saying, I need to be comfortable, I need to be happy. Uh, These are all carnal things that we try to preserve. That false teachers say, oh yes, God just wants to bless you and give you the desires of your heart. God will give you the desires of your heart when your desires of your heart are Him. But on our own, the desires of our heart are not consistent with the heart of God. They're actually rebellious against the the desires of our hearts. And therefore, those who recognize the, the, um, the eternal glory and satisfaction of the life of Christ will gladly declare with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only begotten Son. He gave Himself for me that I may have life and have it abundantly. But if you demand control over your own life, you will refuse the way of the cross and you will refuse Christ's offer of eternal life. If you choose to pursue passions and desires and pleasures of this world that rejects Christ in pain and difficulty, you will never pursue the one who gives abundant life to all who trust in him and take up their cross and follow him. Ocean Park, what life do you seek? Jesus calls us to seek his greater life. Not only his greater life, but he calls us to seek his greater kingdom in verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? John D. Rockefeller, at his death in 1931, had a net worth that would have been approximately $340 billion, with a B, dollars in today's economy. 
and then put that into context, that's, that's a lot of cash. That, um, when you put it in context, that's nearly 200 billion more than Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, and Bill Gates that they have. A reporter once asked uh, uh, him, asked Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And he, almost immediately, without hesitation, he said, just a little bit more. $340 billion is not enough. And John D. Rockefeller can attest to it. Because our hearts were created to find satisfaction in God, and $340 billion and all the tea in China will not satisfy our hunger for God. You can spend your whole life amassing wealth and security and we live in an area with wealth and security and we watch our friends and neighbors amass that wealth and security and they're miserable. You can buy beautiful and expensive things that make you feel special. You can um, stockpile status symbols and honors and achievement that make you feel like somebody. But you will die. And what, your body will be buried in the ground or your ashes will be cast over some strange place and your children will fight over your assets and you will be forgotten over time. The wealth, why? Because the wealth and securities of this life cannot provide for eternity. The honors and titles of this world are worthless for the life to come. The status symbols, the accolades, and the achievements that you attain in this life are meaningless in the kingdom of heaven. J.C. Ryle again says the, whole, the possessions of the whole world and all that it contains would never make a man happy. Rockefeller, its pleasures are false and deceptive. Its riches, rank, and honors have power, have no power, excuse me, to satisfy the heart. So long as we have not got them, they look glitter and they sparkle. They look good at a distance when we're working for them and they seem desirable. And I love this. I love how Ryle puts it. The moment we have them, they are like empty bubbles that burst in our hands and they cannot make us feel content. Eternal life cannot be bought. It cannot be mortgaged. It cannot be earned. No matter how much money you have, no much honor you have, no mu how much your nest egg, how big it is, how much your net worth is, what you accumulate in this life is meaningless for eternity. We can spend our whole life attempting to acquire just a little bit more, all the while missing the most important one. Jesus reminds us and calls us to follow him to eternal life because eternal life cannot be bought in this world. And Jesus says, stop trying. Ocean Park, what are you investing in your life? Jesus calls us to seek his greater life and his greater kingdom. Not only his life and his kingdom, but Christ calls us to seek and desire his greater glory. Continuing, for whoever is ashamed of me and my, my words, of him might the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes into glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
There are many people who find the cross shameful and silly and ridiculous and a travesty. The call of Jesus to deny yourselves and take up your cross is sadistic and out of touch to our pleasure-seeking, consumer-oriented, self-centered life and world. The cross is foolishness because they believe God exists to make your life better and to make your life more comfortable, to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. They don't have a place for a Christ who suffered just like the first century Jews didn't have a place for a suffering Messiah. They wanted a a victorious Messiah. But just as Virgil read us this morning uh, where Daniel in the prophecy prophesies of a day when the Son of Man shall receive all power and authority. I saw the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there come one like the Son of Man. Remember the name that Jesus calls himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nation and language should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, whose, uh, um, which shall never pass away, and the kingdoms shall never be destroyed. Ocean Park, the day that Daniel saw is coming quickly. A day when all people will stand before Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who has been given all power and honor and glory and majesty by the Ancient of Days. And people who are ashamed to take up their cross because they uh, uh, prefer the approval of the world will stand before the Almighty Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And people who sought the honor of the world over the honor of Christ. And people who walked away from Jesus because they desired the pleasures and the relationships that the world offer will stand before Christ. And all they will have is a life that was devoted to themselves to gratify their passions and their massing their own wealth and pursuing the praise of man. It will mean nothing. And it will be shame and loss And then Christ will turn his back, as it says, and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because you said, I don't want to have Jesus. Because I don't want the cross. Ocean Park, whose life do you seek? Jesus calls us to seek a greater life, a greater kingdom, and a greater glory. For only those who lose their earthly life will find eternal life in Christ. Now, you have to be very careful when you look at a verse like this where you can overemphasize suffering and say, hey, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to suffer hard. But following Jesus is not simply a call to suffer. Following Jesus is a call to set your hearts on a greater joy than, the fleeting, than this fleeting world can offer. It's, a, it's a, a call to set your hearts on a joy that though inevitable suffering will come and you will face um, persecution and struggles from without and from within, 
And Satan will promise you the kingdoms of this world in exchange for your heart. And your flesh will wage war with you for dominion all your, of your heart. Jesus is saying, don't throw away eternal life for the sake of a few years of human wealth and human glory. He pleads with you to see the glory of eternity, even though there's in eternity, we will look back and say a few bumps along the road. This amazing, these light momentary afflictions that we read the children are not worth comparing to the weight of glory that is to come. And so as Christians, it's not saying, well, I'm going to suffer for Jesus. It's saying, I'm going to set my heart on eternity, and I'm not going to turn back even though there's suffering and there's struggles and there's difficulty. Just like the disciples this morning in Sunday school. The disciples actually weren't in Sunday school, but we read that story just for your record. That would be a, that would be a pretty good accomplishment. The disciples said, give me boldness, to proclaim an eternal Christ in the face of temporary suffering from, and rejection from the world. Because we have set our affections on what is eternal instead of what is fading and what is fleeting and what is transitory. There is more to be gained following Jesus, even in the face of suffering, than there is walking away from him, even though the world will promise us 10,000 earthly benefits. You cannot keep this life. And the older I get, the more I realize it. We, in five years, brothers and sisters, I have buried 18 people from this church. 18 people who have said, I am setting my heart on the glory of eternity rather than the fleeting praise of this world. And it is worth taking up my cross and dying to myself because I know that Jesus has the authority and the power and the glory forever and ever. And it is worth these light momentary afflictions for 60 to 70 to 80 years. And so for those of you who are unbelievers this morning who don't know Jesus and are not following Jesus, when you hear these things, these are just, you think these are just, this is radical talk. Jesus says, repent. Repent of your self-love and your self-worth and your self-gratification. Um, uh, repent of those things and, and let go of those things and believe the promises of God that say, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son and Jesus died, took my punishment and conquered death and rose again and says, come follow me because the end is greater and take up your cross today for the first time. Say, Father, I, I am a sinner and I have rebelled against you, but the promise of Jesus is that you will forgive me and I believe you and follow him. And it would be my joy to tell you what it means to follow Jesus. To the nominal believers, Stop trying to please God. I'm going to check the box and go to church, throw 20 in the offering plate, you know, not cuss in front of the pastor, things like that. Stop trying to please God and to satisfy your own heart. You are not safe. God knows the heart of all men, even though you might put on a, a beautiful veneer and you know all the vernacular and you say all the right words and you sit and stand and kneel at all the right times. You cannot serve God and man. 
You either are taking up your cross or you're rejecting the cross. Turn that you may live. And to the believer, who says, I know at the end of this road, with the bumps and the potholes and the dangers on my left and the dangers on my right, the dangers from without and the dangers from within, I know that every day is a struggle. And every day is a war, but every day in every step, I'm getting closer to Jesus and getting closer to that glory that will surpass and blow our minds. Keep going. Keep walking. When you fall down, cry out to Jesus for the grace to get back up and keep following Christ with the confident and the hope and the, uh, the assertion that only those who lose their earthly life find eternal life in Christ. I want to close as we turn our focus to the table to Revelation chapter 21, the end of the story. And you can just listen. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, the fleeting earthly life has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to them, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the springs of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, for those who refuse the cross, the faithless, detestable. As for murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, that is the second death. And I saw no, and I saw no temple in this city. For the temple of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp of its light is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates shall never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything that does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life.